God, we thank you. We thank you that you are the good God, that you are the way, that you are the truth, that you are the life, and in your infinite grace and mercy towards us, you have shown us who you are. You have revealed yourself to us. We wouldn't even know who you are except that you have shown us who you are, that you might love us and save us. And so, God, as we turn now to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. Your, your, your word, your Bible, they are, they are literally the words of life. And so I pray this morning, God, as we have an encounter with the words of life, that we would all leave this place having more life than we came with because we have communed with the giver of life, with the author of life. Be in our midst. Be with those, God, who are joining us on the live stream wherever they are at. And may you be greatly honored, magnified, glorified, and lifted up in this moment. I pray all of these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. There's always a, like a random clap or two after that prayer. So if, and if you want to, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. It's totally up to you. We'll, we'll take that clap. Um, so good to be with you. It feels like a little bit we're starting to figure out a rhythm here in the sanctuary, and that is wonderful. Um, there was part of me through this whole pandemic that was like, will we even have a church when this is over? And are people even going to come back? And so it has just been an enormous blessing to be the body of Christ with those of you who are able to and willing to be back here together in person. And, uh, and we're excited for what God is going to do as we continue to journey together. Uh, today's teaching text is from 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 19 verses 14 through 19. Again, 2 Kings 19, verses 14 through 19. I feel that way sometimes too. Uh, I'll give you one more minute to get there. 2 Kings 19, verses 14 to 19. This is what it says. It says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us please from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was in middle school, uh, my best friend in middle school fancied himself a chef. And one Friday night, I slept over at his house. And Saturday morning, we got up, and he decided that he wanted to cook a full breakfast for me and for his family. He had three brothers, mom and dad. He wanted to cook the full bacon, eggs, pancakes deal for his family and for me. Again, we were in middle school. I'm 38, and I still don't think I could pull off cooking a whole breakfast like that for a bunch of people. So 
Uh, his brothers and I, I think we're watching some Saturday morning cartoons or whatever in a room right off of the kitchen, and he's working away in the kitchen preparing breakfast for all of us, when I start to hear like a whooshing sound coming from the kitchen, and I turn my attention from the TV to the kitchen just in time to see a fireball, not a joke, fireball rise from the stove over the hood and spread out across the ceiling of the kitchen. It didn't, it didn't stay on fire. It was like backdraft, like huge fireball came back down, little fires all over the place. Fortunately, his parents were there. They had a fire extinguisher. They jumped to put it out. Um, fire truck came, ambulance came. He had second degree burns over both his hands. The hair on his face was singed off. It was terrifying. What had happened was the grease that he was cooking the bacon in had caught on fire. And some of you know this, I know it now because of that experience. When grease is on fire, the one thing you do not do is put water on it. But he didn't know that. And so he quietly had this little crisis in front of him and he filled some water into a cup and dumped it on the fire hoping that it would put it out. But water and grease don't mix. And so when grease is on fire and you pour water on it, it just splashes it out. And so he did that. It splashed it out into the flame of the stove, and it literally was like a like backdraft in his kitchen. He was fine. He recovered. They remodeled the kitchen. It was more beautiful than it was before. It, it all worked out in the end. Don't, don't worry about that. But what I want us to see in that story is that my friend had a little crisis. In the grand scheme of things, a little crisis. But he had a little crisis on his hands. And he had several options that he could have chosen to respond to that crisis. And he just happened to choose the wrong one. Now, that is not a criticism of him. I would have done the exact same thing. Many of us would have done the exact same thing in those same circumstances. Now, hopefully you won't. If grease is on fire, don't pour water on it. Baking soda or, or a fire extinguisher. But he had a crisis. And the thing that he thought would actually make it better actually made it worse. See, the moment of crisis is universal. We all are going to have moments of crisis in our lives. I can see some of the older heads nodding. That's because you've been through crises. If you're here and you're like, I've never been through a crisis, you're probably five. And I don't, I don't mean to stress you out, but it's coming. Because the moment of crisis is universal. We're all gonna walk through them. And in fact, we're all gonna walk through many of them. Some of the crises in our lives are very obvious. When a, when a parent or a spouse or a child or a friend dies, that's a moment of crisis. When in the reorganization, our job is eliminated, that's a crisis. When the diagnosis is cancer or something else that's, that's just as scary, that's a moment of crisis. When, when we get seriously injured, when we find out that someone has been unfaithful, when there's a divorce, when there's a miscarriage, all of you are like, thank you, Pastor Gary, for this very encouraging start to your sermon this morning. Those are the obvious moments of crisis. But I would also argue there are a lot of things that we walk through in life that don't seem on the surface obvious, but they are moments of crisis as well. Listen to what the dictionary definition of crisis is. This is actually the, the Google dictionary, so I don't know actually which dictionary that is, but shout out to all our Googlers. It says, crisis is a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. It is a time when difficult or important decision must be made. Crisis, a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. It is a time when a difficult or important decision must 
be made. And so while there are obvious crises, there are also other things that we walk through that are maybe not as obvious. A new job, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but that can feel like a crisis. It can feel like a really difficult season trying to assimilate into a new company and a new culture or a new workplace and figuring out what that's like. Moving. Moving is a time of crisis. I don't care if you're moving across town or across the world. It is a difficult, challenging time where hard decisions need to be made. Parenting. For those of us who have kids, kids are like, and we love all of you that are here. They're like 18 years of crisis. It's like newborn, crisis, toddler, crisis, middle school, crisis, so on and so forth. If you don't have kids, that can feel like a crisis. Marriage can feel like a crisis, a difficult, intense season where hard decisions have to be made. Not being married can feel like a crisis. The moments where, and we don't talk about this a lot, and I think most of us have these moments, maybe not all of us, but most of us. The moments in life where you are just like, who am I? And how did I get here? And what am I doing? And where am I going? It's a crisis moment in our lives. We are going to walk through crises. It is universal. The question is, how are we going to respond to those crises? Like my friend whose bacon grease was on fire, he had several options. And so the question I want to hang out in front of all of us today, I want to hang out over this sermon this morning, is when the crisis moment comes, how are we going to respond? There was a movie that came out when I was two years old. I've actually never seen it to this day. But there was a cartoon of the same uh, theme that I did watch when I was growing up, and they had the same theme song. Both the movie and the cartoon had the same theme song. And this is how it goes. If there's something strange in the neighborhood... Who are you going to call? If there's something weird and it don't look good, who are you going to call? When the crisis comes, who are you going to call? So we're in the middle of a series this morning, a short series we're doing, uh, looking at some of the great prayers of the Bible, and we're calling it Cries of Our Heart. This morning, we are going to look at one of the great prayers for deliverance, one of the great prayers of salvation in the Old Testament, prayed by uh, one of the kings of Judah, whose name was Hezekiah. And for us to fully appreciate what is going on in the passage I just read, we have to have some context. We have to have a picture of what was going on at that moment that Hezekiah prayed this prayer for us to understand what is going on. Now, I can see your eyes glaze over as I say we need to get some historical context, but it's very interesting, and I'm sure you're going to be interested in it as well. Hezekiah and the kingdom of Judah in this moment are facing a crisis. A little bit of the history that brought them to this point. Nation of Israel, God's chosen people, brought out of slavery in Egypt, wandered through the desert, brought into the promised land, drove out the nations that were in the promised land, God did, to give it to his, his people, the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel peaked around the year 1000 BC when King David, who was the greatest king in the nation's history, reigned over the kingdom of Israel. His son Solomon took over after him. After King Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel is split in two. The 10 tribes in the north become the northern kingdom of Israel and two tribes in the south, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, become the southern kingdom of Judah. And the story of first and second kings is the story of the leadership of those two kingdoms under the divided king, under the divided kingdom. And the story is essentially a story of, it's a case study in leadership. 
and how important leadership is and how destructive poor leadership is because both in Israel and Judah, king after king after king leads God's people further and further away from God, further into sin, further into disobedience, further into not upholding the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. And as he promised, in 722 B.C., because of the gross sin of his people, God allowed the northern kingdom of Israel to be conquered. It's conquered by a nation called Assyria. They were the world power at that time, and they were running roughshod over the ancient northeast, taking over kingdoms and kings left and right. And in 722, the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel falls. King Hezekiah, who is the one who prays the prayer in our text, he is on the throne in Judah, the southern kingdom. He sees the northern kingdom of Israel fall, the people be deported, and then the Assyrians set their sights on Judah. They keep marching southward and they begin taking over Judean city after Judean city after Judean city until they get to Jerusalem. And Sennacherib, king of a delegation with a letter to King Hezekiah basically saying, give it up or we're going to destroy you all. Hezekiah and the nation of Judah in this moment are facing a crisis. And the first thing I want us to see as we study this text that we're looking at today is this. God allows us to go through crises. God allows his beloved children to go through crises. I'm not saying that God sends crises all the time. Sometimes he might. But I am saying, because it's the clear teaching of the passage we're looking at and of the broader context of scripture, God allows his children to go through crises. Now, In order to see what's happening, in order to get a picture of what's happening here with Hezekiah, I want us to back up a little bit. So I said 2 Kings is is just king after king that is leading both Israel and Judah further and further away from God. And then we get to 2 Kings chapter 18, and that introduces Hezekiah's reign. And this is what it says about Hezekiah, starting in 18 verse 3. It says, Hezekiah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Every king virtually up to this point, it is said, he did what was evil in the sight of God. And we get to Hezekiah and it says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah. So one, not a lot of guys in the Old Testament get compared to David. That's like really good. And then it tells us that he is making religious reforms. He's taking the people away from pagan worship back to the worship of Yahweh. Skip ahead to verse five. It says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Verse seven, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. Hezekiah was the man in a sea of losers. He was the biggest winner of all. And based on how his story starts in chapter 18, what would we expect that the story of his reign for the rest of chapter 18 and 19 would look like? We would expect that it was awesome because this guy was a man after God. He was like David. He was reforming the nation religiously. He trusted God. He, he, God was with him wherever he went. And so we would have expected that this would be a season like when David was king. Everything was smooth. Everything was quiet. Blessings rolled out upon the Israelites. But that is not what we find. It is during Hezekiah's reign that the nation of Assyria, King Sennacherib, come literally to the gates of his city and they faced the greatest crisis maybe in the history of Judah up to that point. He has done everything right. 
He is doing all the right things. He is not sinning grossly. He is not abandoning God. And yet he is the one who has to deal with the mess. If I'm Hezekiah, I'm like, God, all these kings before me were train wrecks. Why is it during my reign that the Assyrians are here to destroy us? And the answer is because sometimes God allows his children to walk through crises. It was about six weeks ago, and I was up here working late, not too late on a Friday, on a Friday afternoon, towards the end of the afternoon on a Friday, and I got a call from my wife, Beth. She was at the dentist. She had taken a couple of our kids to the dentist, and when she went to leave, uh, the car wouldn't start. Couldn't get it to go. Figured it was the battery. So I left here, went home, got our jumper cables, went and met her at the dentist, and for the next, uh, like, 30 or 45 minutes, just so frustratingly tried to jump our minivan from my car and just could not get it to go. So finally, uh, I've been a AAA member for like 10 years, first time I've ever used them, called AAA, uh, sent the kids home and Beth in my car, and I waited there for the AAA guy to come. He came, tested the battery, and he was like, this battery is beyond dead. It's deader than dead. It's not going to be resurrected. Uh, if I jump it, you may make it home, but you're going to have to be jumped again as soon as you, as soon as you turn off the car. Uh, so he replaced the battery on the spot, you know, $165 later, I was on my way home, good to go. We didn't do anything to mess with that battery. Like, we didn't open the hood of our car every few days and just bang on it with a hammer. We didn't pour water on it just to kind of mess with it. We just treated our car the way we'd like to, you should treat a car. And the battery just eventually died. It just, its useful life was over, and that was the day that it decided to be, to be done living. And that was a small crisis for us. But that's how life works sometimes. It's how it worked for Hezekiah. He wasn't doing anything wrong, but the battery died on his watch. And the same thing happens with us. The same thing happens in our lives. We can be doing all the right things. We can be, I mean, obviously we're sinners. We're not doing all the right things. We're sinning every day. But it's like we don't have to be doing gross, negligent things in our walk with God. And yet the crisis can still come. And I know there's folks in here who can testify to that. But here's the challenge. Here's the problem. For most of us, when the crisis does come, we do not respond like, thank you, God, for this graciousness in your life where you're teaching me and molding me into the image of your son, and I see that this is your goodness in my life. When the crisis comes, how do we respond? We're like, why me? All of these people around me, their lives are great. Why am I the one who has to go through this? I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I have heard, and I'm just being really honest with you, how many times I've said my own self, I feel like God is punishing me. But you need to hear this morning that the moments of crisis are not God's punishment in your life. They are not the moments that God is angry with you, upset with you, uh, teaching you a lesson while he is probably in a good way, not in the bad way that we think of it. It is not because you've done something wrong. Certainly, there are moments where we face crises because we've acted improperly and we're just reaping what we have sown. But there are moments in our lives where we get into a mess simply because that is the nature of walking through life in this sinful world. The good news, though, this morning is that God uses the crisis God uses the crisis, and the crisis in our life can be the evidence truly of God's goodness and his care for us because it is in the crisis, it is when God allows us to go through crises that he is teaching us something. God allows us to go through the crisis, point number two, so that we will learn to turn to him, so that we will learn to turn 
to him. So here's Hezekiah, king of Judah, trying to do everything right. His, 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 his nation is literally crumbling in front of his eyes. The Assyrians, the big, bad, undefeatable Assyrians have come to his capital city of Jerusalem. They are literally outside the gate. They send a letter saying, you're dead unless you surrender to us. And how does he respond? Verses 14 and 15 of our text. It says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed. The first thing he does when the crisis comes, I wish I had a dollar for every time I've said crisis in this sermon. The first thing he does when the crisis comes is he goes to God's house and he lays it before him and he prays. Now that looks good, but it looks even better when we understand a little bit more of the context which Hezekiah was in. Hezekiah's father was a man named, a king named Ahaz, horrible king. Uh, Ahaz, during his reign in Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel aligned with the kingdom of Syria and they came against Judah in battle. And Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, when he was faced with that crisis, did not turn to God, he turned to Assyria. He emptied the temple and the treasury of all the gold and silver, sent it to the king of Assyria and said, come help me, defend me against Israel and Syria. Did I say Assyria? Sent it to the king of Assyria. Now one generation later, that country that Ahaz thought was his ally is here on the doorstep ready to destroy his own son. You know, I've said this before in the words of my favorite doctor, Dr. Phil. How's that working out for you? Also, during Hezekiah's reign, king of Israel, Hosea, he, the Assyrians come against Israel. We know how this plays out. I already told you. Hosea has the Assyrians coming against his kingdom. Doesn't turn to God. He goes to Egypt. And he has Egypt to come help him defend himself against Assyria. And again, Assyria smashes Israel. So how's that working out for you? So when we get to Hezekiah, and the crisis arrives on his doorstep. And the first thing he does is go into God's house and pray. The contrast could not be more stark with the examples that he had seen set before him. The crisis arrives. Hezekiah goes to God's house. And this is basically what he says. He says, I have a problem. And because I am your child, God, it is now your problem too. We need you to do something. So if you get nothing else out of this message, this is the big idea of the message. When the crisis arrives, when the crisis comes to your doorstep and you have a choice of how are you going to respond, who are you going to call? Turn in prayer to God. He is teaching us in the crisis to turn to him. I have a friend uh, who recently uh, was very seriously injured, not life-threatening, but, but very hurt. And uh, this week was talking about the pain and was asked if he's taking his pain medication. And he said something that I thought was so profound and so applicable to the ideas we're talking about today. He said he does not like to take his pain medication because the pain reminds him of what he can and cannot do. He said, if I dull the pain, I might do something that I shouldn't do. The pain is actually good for me because it reminds me of what I can and cannot do. And that is the role of the crisis in each of our lives. Sometimes it is God's gracious hand allowing us to walk through difficulty 
because it is in the pain of that difficulty that we are reminded of what we can and what we cannot do. The problem, once again, is that so often when we feel that pain, when the grease is on fire, when Assyria is outside the gates, we turn to the wrong place. We turn to our money. We turn to our position. We turn to uh, pornography or binge eating or we turn to uh, retail therapy. Those things cannot get us through the crisis. All they do is numb the pain and encourage us to do things that are just going to make it worse. It is good for us to feel the pain because it reminds us of what we can and what we cannot do. So when the grease is on fire and when Assyria is outside the gates, go up to the temple, lay your problem before God and say, God, I have a problem. And because I am your child, this is also your problem. Please help. God allows us to go through crises so that we will learn to turn to him. Point number three, because he is the only one who can deliver. He is the only one who can deliver. So Hezekiah goes and lays his problem before God. And this is the prayer that he prays. This is a series on prayers. So we're actually going to talk about the prayer. Wish we had like another hour to talk about it. We don't, so we're just going to go through it quickly. Three things that Hezekiah prays, and I just want to point them out because they are a model for us in the middle of the hard times of how to go to God and how to pray to him about it. Three parts. First one is this. He acknowledges who God is. Verse 15, and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. What's he saying? You're the only one who can help. You're the real God. You're the one who made all of this. And my only hope is found in you. That's a good place to start. So he acknowledges. Second thing he does is he explains. Verse 16, he explains the problem. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. He's saying what we've already talked about. We have a problem. Here's what it is. Because we're your children, it's your problem too, God. And then the last thing he does is he requests. He acknowledges, he explains, and then he makes his request. Skip ahead to verse 19. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. You are the only one who can help. For all my Star Wars fans out there, help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're what? You're our only hope. Help us, God. You are our only hope. And we get in verse 20, Isaiah the prophet. He's a big dude, a big character in the, in the biblical narrative. Isaiah the prophet sends a message to Hezekiah. He says, the Lord has heard your prayer. And then we skip ahead to verse 35. This is what it says. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose in their morning, early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home. God is the only one who could deliver them, and he did. We have, archaeologists have excavated records from Assyria 
talking about the Assyrian conquests of Israel and Judah at this time. It's called the Taylor Prism. There's three copies of it. They're in museums uh, spread out over the world. The record of Assyria talks about how they captured Israel, how they marched through Judah. Sennacherib says in this thing that they have uncovered, he says, I caged Hezekiah like a bird in his own city. And while the records of Assyria do not talk about the massacre in the middle of the night, which most historians say we would expect that because they only recorded their victories on their tablets, uh, it does say they left Judah with Hezekiah still on the throne. And as one commentator said when I was reading this, he said that, was, that would have been very strange in light of how powerful Syria was, Assyria was and how vulnerable Judah was. Uh, my Old Testament, one of my Old Testament professors in seminary, during her own seminary education, took a class on Assyrian history at Harvard University, the, the Harvard. The professor was not a Christian. And speaking of this event, he said, Assyria should have annihilated Hezekiah and Judah. To this day, we do not know why they did not take Jerusalem. And with all due respect, I would like to say we absolutely do know why the Assyrians could not take Jerusalem. It is because, as Psalm 34, 7 tells us, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. It is because if God is for us, who can be against us? It is because the God who is enthroned above the cherubim, the God who is the king over all the kingdoms of the earth, the God who is the creator of heaven and earth is our only hope. He is our only deliverance. And when we cry out to him, it is his great delight to see us through whatever crisis is in front of us. Can we recognize in this moment the freedom that is found in that? The pressure is off. The pressure is off. It is not up to us. When the crisis comes, we do not have to just white knuckle our way through it. We do not just have to muscle our way through it. It is not, a, a control is an illusion. And there is nothing like a good crisis to remind us of that. The words of Isaiah to King Hezekiah in this passage are the words of God to you and me today. I have heard your prayer and it is my delight to rescue you. I have heard your prayer and it is my delight to rescue you. He is faithful. The Apostle Paul, writing to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says this. He says, you have seen how I suffered and was persecuted at Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And then in the next verse, he says, and yet from all of them, God has delivered me. Not from some of them, yet from all of them, God has delivered me. I saw something this week that said, you have made it through 100% of your bad days. If you are listening to me talk right now, that is true for you. You have made it through 100% of your bad days. On my way up here this morning, Beth didn't know what I was preaching on this morning. She sent me a picture. It's a boy and a horse with a huge storm in the background. And the boy says to the horse, have you, what is the best thing you've learned about storms? And the horse says, it's that they end. So whatever your storm is, whatever, whatever grease fire you have burning in front of you, Whatever Assyria is outside your gates right now, 
the storm will end. Cry out to the only one who can deliver you. It is his great pleasure to respond and deliver his people. Walk with them through the crises of life. And as Hezekiah reminds us in verse 19, when he does that, we become a show and tell for the world of how powerful and glorious God is. It is not just for us that God walks with us through the storms. It is so that the world can see who he is, what he has done, and what he is capable of doing. So as we wrap this up, I know I'm a few minutes over. Thanks for your patience. As we wrap this up, can we just recognize what we see in this text? I believe, and I know many of you would agree with this, I believe that there is one unified central story to God's word. I believe that God's word points to one central figure, one central character, and that is the person of Jesus Christ and the good news of his gospel. And what we have here in this passage, in, these, uh, in 2 Kings 18 and 19, is the gospel in the Old Testament. Don't miss it. This is a precursor. This is a forerunner. This is pointing to the greater salvation that was to come. Here are God's people. They are helpless against this great horde. They cannot defeat this army that has come against them. They have done nothing to deserve God's help. They have nothing, nothing to deserve God's favor. There is nothing that they can offer God. And yet in his mercy and grace and kindness and love for them, he has come down and delivered them from the enemy. And that is the same thing that he did through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Grease fires are crises. Assyrians are crises. Divorce is a crisis. Miscarriage is a crisis. Losing your job is a crisis. But there is a greater crisis, the greatest crisis, and that is the crisis of sin and its child death. And we are all facing that crisis. And God in his infinite grace has reached down and done something about it. In 701 BC, the enemy had to die so that God's people could be saved. In 33 AD, God's son had to die so that his people could be saved. And the promise of this book is that for anyone who calls on God, who prays the prayer that Hezekiah prayed, God, I acknowledge who you are. I have a problem and I need your help, is that salvation has already been won. It has already been affected. All we have to do is pray. So if there's something strange in the neighborhood, who are you going to call? If there's something weird and it don't look good, who are you going to call? Let's pray. God, we ask that you would just implant um, this word onto our hearts today as we leave this place. For those who are here in person, God, for those who are watching online. I pray that the truth of your gospel, the truth of your salvation, God, the truth of who you are, that you are a good and loving father and that even though we walk through hard things, that does not mean that you are displeased with us or we don't have your favor, but that actually the crises in our lives can be evidence of your love and graciousness and kindness as you are forming us into the image of your son and reminding us of what we can and cannot do. We ask that you would give us that perspective even in the darkness. Help us to remember in the dark what you have shown us in the light. We thank you that our hope is found in you and in nothing else because nothing else can deliver like you can. 
I pray that it would be real to us, God, so real that it actually changes the way we live our lives, that it changes the way we make decisions, that it changes the way we treat our spouse and our kids and our neighbors and our coworkers. God, we love you and we want to love you more. We ask that you would empower us to do that. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. It has been a privilege to be with you all today and to be with those of you who are joining with us online. Uh, if you have anything you need prayer for, it is our privilege to pray for you. You pray for you. You can reach out to us at prayer at ALCF.net. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus with your life, if you want to know what it means to pray a prayer like Hezekiah prayed, not about an, an enemy outside your gate, but about, about the enemy of sin that has, that has infiltrated the city already, we would love to talk to you about that as well. You can meet with me after service, or you can reach out to us at info at ALCF.net. Uh, we're continuing to gather in person. Please continue to register ahead of time uh, before you come, and we look forward to being with those of you here in person next week or online again next week. Please uh, stand for the benediction. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be great unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved, you are prayed for, and you are sent. And if you could please uh, exit quickly and we can visit outside. It doesn't look like it's raining. <laughs>